What's that? Monday and Holy. Oh, same thing. When it comes to Thursday. It's the same thing. I know, but not here. They don't really say that. They say it in my church. If you guys could wait until after, because this sounds serious. No, it yeah, is. Okay. okay. It's not your thing. It's right here. Let's. Um, you started. <laughs> All your meatballs forgive you. <laughs> let's let's start. Um, any prayer requests tonight? My father-in-law is having a Catholic put in. Friday, Larry Durbin. His name's Larry. Larry. Do you have a heart attack? Something? Now he was in for a checkup. Boy, you don't want to go in for checkups. <laughs> <laughs> stay, away from, stay away from hospitals. God. Chester, could you get the door? Did you have? Did you have somebody, yes. Chester? Yeah. Felicia. Felicia. Felicia's having an operation this week. You don't want to know. That's for him to Who's Felicia? Some woman I know. Some, oh, some woman he knows. <laughs> the mystery woman. Francis Uncle. Oh, yeah. And I'm still sorry Bob and Marcy are not here. I thought they'd be here tonight, but. Um, Really expect we've talked with them a number of times recently, but and they've sounded better and better. But anybody else, Mary? It's so good to see you again. So good to see you again. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning. Your words to us, it's Advent, um, it's a time of preparation, it's a serious time. The church asks us to step back from the world, to take more seriously renunciations, to, um, to put away attachments to the world so that we're more able to bring you to everything we, we do do. Um, during this Advent season, help all of us to take these preparations seriously knowing how hard it is in Christmas, because there's such a bustle. Um, uh, we're surrounded by um, people who come close to being hysterical, just um, doing everything they can for Christmas. It, in, in some respects, it should be a time of prayer and contemplation and um, doing what we can to get closer to you so that we bring you to what we do. Um, help all of us in our efforts. Um, it's a time also to take seriously the sacraments, the Eucharist, for all of us. Um, to make a time for confession. Um, I think we grow closer to you um, for when we do confess the humility that comes to us in those acts. So let all of us be strengthened in whatever efforts we make in this Advent season. Let it be a good season. Um, a time of hope, even if it's bearing our sins, all of us, we're all sinners. 
um, to be strengthened in our hope, take a joy, be glad for whatever pains we take. Um, so that when Christmas comes, uh, we will know a deeper joy for welcoming you again into our world. The renewal that comes with it, the new life that comes with it. Ask for a special blessing on Larry. Um, be with him in this operation. Let it be simple and um, let everything go well. Um, sorry, Chester. Felicia, what's, yeah, what's going on? Sorry. What are we praying for, if I can ask? She's having a surgery. Surgery. Um, be with Felicia in her surgery. Um, give the doctor sure hands. Um, um, help her to trust, to look to you. Um, whatever happens, um, let everything that happens uh, be an occasion for her faith being strengthened. And let all of those who care for her have quiet hearts. Fred and Francis are not here tonight. Francis's uncle died. Um, receive him into your kingdom. If um, he's to do a time in purgatory, let our prayers help him, speed him, so that he will sooner know the joy of being with you. And I ask for a grace for all of those that carry loved ones in our hearts for whatever burdens they're carrying. Um, help us all um, to grow in our faith, to bring a greater love to everything we do, to be one with you in everything, particularly in this Advent season. We offer these prayers, Christ in your name, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, um, can you all take out Wild Swans? The pool, the, the poem we're going to do tonight, tonight is Wild Swans at Pool. I was trying to think of an appropriate poem. It's not in your packet. It, it, it would go with the Yeats poem. That's why it's, uh, it's printed off separately tonight. Um, for, for, I think because of the work that I was doing, I was reminded of this poem, and, and I, I love this poem. There's um, nothing in it jumps out, but I, I, I hope you'll see in a minute um, how appropriate it is. Um, it's a quiet sort of understated poem, and it speaks actually to an equality of Advent and to our Christian faith, and so it doesn't go quite to this concern that we've had all along about um, finding Christ where ordinarily we don't see him, but it, indirectly it does speak to that. And I, if it's not obvious when I read the poem, I, I hope it is with just the few things that I say afterwards. But this is from Yeats, The Wild Swans. And by the way, Yeats was an English poet, an Irish poet. Um, he and Eliot, or T.S. Eliot, are thought to be the two greatest poets of the 20th century. Some people prefer Yeats, um, Eliot. They're, they're both extraordinary poets. I happen, I personally happen to believe that Eliot goes to greater depths than Yeats, but they are, the two of them and Wallace Stevens are probably the great, great poets of our, Frost belongs in there somewhere, but for sure Eliot and, and Yeats, William Butler, Yeats. So this is Yeats, The Wild Swans at Cool. <clears throat> the trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky, 
Upon the brimming water among the stones are ninety and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw before I'd well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied, still, lover by lover, they paddled in the cold, companionable streams or climbed the air. Their hearts have not grown old, passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build, by what lake's edge or pool, delight men's eyes, when I awake some day to find they have flown away? The wild swans are cool. What in the world is this about, besides swans nesting in a pool, one of these many lakes in this area um, close by where um, Yates lived? all this concern about 95, nine, nine or 50, 59, sorry, 59 swans. What season is it? Autumn. What time of the day? Twilight. Twilight. How's the water described? Brimming. How many swans? 59. How many autumns? 19. 19. What do all those things say? In every one of those, Chester, did you? Um, he's getting older. <laughs> yeah. Autumn. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, every one of those things. Um, um, have to do with a condition um, that's about to complete itself. They're all close to a completion, yeah? Autumn, twilight of the, the evening, the brimming waters, the, night, the 59 swans, the night. Every one of them is close to a full number, a whole number, yeah? Something about to happen. And yet, and it, it, when you read it, Yates is describing all of these things that are reaching a perfection, a completion, and he comes to a point where he knows he will never be there. He won't see it. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle, companionable, their hearts have not grown old, passion or conquest, all these great things going on in the world. So what, what's imaged in swans um, parallels what's imaged in men. We do all these great things. How often in our world do we find the completion that all of us long for? Doesn't happen. Doesn't ha yeah, rarely, if all, if at all. <clears throat> Even in our deepest loves, don't we feel sometimes that no matter how much we love, we wait on a completion. We we long for it desperately, want it, but we live expectant and often disillusioned because we don't get it. Yeah. Um, it seems to me the beauty of this poem is that it's about that condition of life. It, it's as if 
It's interesting too. How can all of these things share the same nature if they all don't have the same source? How can so many diverse things share in this condition of incompleteness? It's there everywhere. It's everywhere in life. Because they all have being in common. They all share being. They exist. They are. And the source of all things in creation is being. Right? All things come from it. We share in it. We participate in it. But in the poem, it makes clear that all these things in the world are wounded. They, they won't see this completion. Yeah? Um, but now they drift on the... Stu- I mean, w- w- picture this. This man is contemplating the beauty of these things. Swans are beautiful creatures. You, know, you all know that if you've seen them. They're stunning birds. On a pool... Because a pool is a, is a pastoral world, it's peaceful, it's quiet, it's serene. Even in itself, it suggests perfection. You know, the beauty of a, a lake scene, all of us know that. The, the peace and calm, if you go to the lake, how many of us go to the lake to get away, as far away as you can from the city? Um, so even the lake itself is, a, is an image of something quiet in nature. Yeah, that we long for that peace, to get out of the city. Um, so everything about it evokes this sense of a beauty and a perfection, and his awareness of it, his sense of it everywhere, it permeates everything in nature. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find that they have flown away. He will never see it. So let me leave that with you. I just because it seems to me it's a it's a lovely poem about the incompleteness of life. We're in Advent. It's a it's a time to be glad for beauty, knowing it's not enough. Something's gonna come into the world. Something's going to come into the world on a dark winter day, in the dead of winter, when there's no reason to be glad for anything. It's cold, it's freezing, we can't go outside. There are no lakes that we can go to. Um, It's freezing. It's in the dead of winter. I mean, in some ways, winter itself symbolizes everything about our life that's dark and frustrating and disillusioning. And, And in this time, in the depth of winter, comes our God and offers for a moment a completeness and calls us to another condition where it will go on forever. But here, at least in Wild Swans of Pool, we got a beautiful poem about how our whole, everything about our life suggests perfection. It will just, you know, be, but not yet, not now. Okay? Sorry. I, I thought, despite all that that you're saying, the one item that caught my, my eyes was their hearts have not grown made. So all this perfection, this imperfection is happening. They won't see the end, but yet their hearts haven't grown away. Yeah, and it, but it's interesting, too, that, that that condition applies for animals because they they don't have a power of reflection on nature the way men do. We're, we, we're aware of our mortality. 
in a way the animal vegetable kingdoms are not. You know, we carry it. We, we, we carry a wound with us. Wild swans at pool. Any questions or other thoughts on it? Brigida, sorry, Gita. Do you have something? No. Did you like it? Yeah, I did. Did you? It's a beautiful poem. Anybody? Anybody? No? Okay. Okay. Um, just, I'm going to try to make as brief <laughs> a review. You know how futile that is for me. <laughs> you please stop listening to my wife on this issue. She's not saying anything. She keeps, she, oh, you, she keeps making faces. She keeps going, <laughs> too long on review, too long on review. Get on, get on. So like last time we went through Dante. <laughs> <laughs> what did she say? <laughs> kind of like the last time we went to Dante. <laughs> You're here again. That's amazing to me. That's amazing. That's amazing. We're going to get it the second time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did all of you land on the same table? Just that wasn't by accident. <laughs> I want to just reread this passage from Tate, remember, on the symbolic imagination, because I think it's worth hearing again, uh, even though we looked at it, uh, we looked at it last week. Remember that Tate is trying to make a distinction between what he calls the symbolic imagination and the angelic imagination. Yeah. And um, what's on his mind, clearly, is the way in which the sciences, modern sciences, and the Protestant mind have both abstracted from nature and left it in a world of abstractions. And the effect of that on our emotions, we, we don't, we've lost any frames of reference by which to gauge, judge our feelings. And one of the sad effects of that in the modern world, certainly from my experiences and as a father and husband and teacher and, you know, is that, um, because our world has become so intellectual, and in some ways so anti-intellectual, but it, it's left the emotions out to dry. I mean, we just, we don't deal with emotions very well, I don't think, as a people. Um, we tend to live in abstractions in our heads, so the question that Tate's facing, and C.S. Lewis, remember this is, it's quotes from both of them, are how to form ordinate emotions. That was the phrase that St. Augustine <coughs> used. How do we form ordinate, lawful, Ordo, um, natural, norm, normative emotions. Um, and their argument is that if, if, if we learn to form good emotions, when reason comes, reason will find a strength from our hearts. Because their argument is it's our hearts that make us human. In our heads we live like angels. In our bellies we live like beasts. It's in our hearts, the seat of magnanimity, the seat of the affections, that we're most human, that we learn to love. Or, and how can we learn to love if our minds aren't well developed? I mean, what, what can get, what help, where do we turn for help to gauge our emotions? How important is the truth? If we don't learn to see well, how can we develop our emotions well? So all of these men, 
um, had this same concern. What, what do we do in education? Um, what can help us? Because we live in an age in which the emotions are, are virtually stuffed, stuffed, repressed. Or they go nuts. I mean, we all, <laughs> it's impossible to go on TV today without just seeing, I mean, it's, it's a mob mentality. People's passions are through the roof. Those are not ordinate emotions. There's no civil discussion. People are not discussing. They're ready to kill each other. So what do we do? Um, C.S. Lewis, Tate were, were men of letters. They, they were um, some of the great apologists for Christianity in our modern world, and, and all of them had a background in literature, and they took literature really seriously. So. So Tate's speaking on this issue, remember, trying to make a distinction between the angelic imagination and the, what he calls the symbolic. <clears throat> the bottom page four on that handout I gave you. He's quoting um, Charles Williams, who had written a book on Dante. And in that book, he said that Dante always begins with a common thing, with a common word, the woman in the street. If you read... La Vita Nuova, which, by the way, is in the back of our book. For any of you who are interested, this is, this is really important, actually. I mean, we're not going to read it in our time together. But, um, but in the back of our collection, we've got Dante's La Vita Nuova, the new life. It's Dante's poem um, that he was inspired to write the f when he saw Beatrice. He was such, he didn't marry Beatrice, he married another woman, but he, he never stopped loving Beatrice all of his life. Because in Beatrice, he saw an image of the Trinity. He looked at her and he saw, I mean, it was luminous, clear. And you know, well, I mean, if, even if you've not read it, you know f I, from any awareness you have of the Divine Comedy that Beatrice is going to be his guide in the last third of the Verdiso. So this woman is not a... She doesn't play a small role in the Commedia, it's a huge role. But Williams makes the point that Dante starts with the ordinary thing, a girl in the street. Dante was walking in, in Florence and happened to see this group of young women and uh, Beatrice just stunned him. He saw something in her beauty that awakened a sense of the divine in a human person. It was on the basis of that that he wrote La Vita, The New Life, that that moment, the, of, of experiencing that beauty in her awakened in him a sense of something new. It, it created something new in him. So um, Tate is recalling that line in William's book on Dante, and he says at the bottom of page four, this is the simple secret of Dante, but it's a secret which is not necessarily available to the Christian poet today. The Catholic faith has not changed. Our faith, is, our dogmas any different now than they were 500 years ago? No. No. Um, but the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poets from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic. And it's not distinguishable, distinguishable, doctrinal differences aside, from poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, atheists. I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine be true, is necessary for a great poetry of action. By the way, the two exemplars, the two consummate exemplars of poetry, in my mind, are Dante and Shakespeare. There's not a question in my mind that Shakespeare's Catholic, even if it's never made explicit. He could not render the concrete world 
as well as he does engaging miracles, the way miraculous things keep entering into his world without a sensibility that found in the concrete, real things in front of us something more going on. Um, so, I mean, and where do they live? Dante coming out of the High Middle Ages, Shakespeare right after him in the Renaissance. And what happens right after Shakespeare? The Reformation, and we're in the modern world. And you, I, I hope you all have a greater sense now of what's going on. I mean, we, we're in a time of, it's just a difficult time. It's a time of real confusion. So, and it, it's existed for the last 400 years. I mean, that's, that's the muddle we're in. Um, that muddle was not less present to Shakespeare, but he had a clarity of vision that could bring something out of it that's rare. He and Dante, um, the works that they've done are just extraordinary. Bach, Dante, Shakespeare. Catholic poets have lost, along with their heretical friends, the power to start with the common thing. They have lost the gift for concrete experience. The abstraction of the modern mind has obscured their way into the natural order. The, the, the Protestant mind, the scientific mind, circumvents the world of concrete things. It goes around them. We've lost our way into it and moved towards an order of abstraction. So we have separated ourselves from the modern world. All this stuff about estrangement from nature, you know, that's so much part of our vocabulary. It's not an act, it's a real description. I mean, there's a real estrangement. We don't engage concrete things anymore. People who garden, you know, people who love gardening or flowers or, I mean, any way in which we can relate to each other in a current, you know that, all of us not, on some concrete level, brings us closer together. Otherwise, we're... There's a distance that we have to struggle to overcome. Um, so go down, page five. That the gift of analogy was not Dante's alone, every medievalist knows. The most striking proof of its diffusion and the most useful example for my purpose that I know of is the letter of St. Catherine of Siena to Brother Raymond. And remember, this was a man who was going to be executed, she met with him knowing that he was terrified, he was going to meet his death, he's facing an execution, and it was a moment of trying to help strengthen him in his faith. And she knew and he knew that he was going to lose his life. Now I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing and to make it real, literally in action. I've asked this question before. How many of us go up to receive the Eucharist and feel in that moment, <coughs> I mean in every fiber of our being, that we're taking Christ into us and entering into a divine life? Or is it an abstraction in our mind? You know, how, how fully do we participate in it as an act of faith? For I take it to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing and to make it real, literally in action. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. Reporting something, talking about something, is not the same thing as <coughs> being one in it, yeah? 
Um, St. Catherine does not report it, she recreates it so that its analogical meaning is confirmed again in the blood that she has seen. This is how she does it. Then the condemned man came like a gentle lamb. He's going to be sacrificed. He's a human being. She's already seen him like a lamb. He's, she sees him one with Christ. And, and by the way, remember, he's, he's being accused of something <coughs> wrong. I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough. I don't know what the accusation is, but yeah, was he guilty? I don't know. But the, at least there's some imputed guilt. We don't know. He may be guilty of something. I'm not sure. Does it matter? What matters is his faith at this moment. Seeing me, he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he'd received the sign, I said, "Down to the bridle, my sweetest brother, for soon shalt thou be in the enduring life." He prostrated himself with great gentleness, and I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said, Not except Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness and saying, I will. When he was at rest, when he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet. And, so, and in so great fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from him. I'm almost afraid to say, <coughs> you know, we've, we've become <coughs> people that put such value on manners. You know, if you get messy, you want to clean the messiness up. She doesn't want to do that. <coughs> yeah, we would have that person committed to that. <laughs> she, she wants... She's one with it. She wants to be in it, with it, in this moment. She's not going to tidy it. It is deeply shocking, as all proximate incarnations of the word are shocking, whether in Christ and the saints or in Dostoevsky, Joyce, James. I believe it was T.S. Eliot who made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said that people cannot bear very much reality. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage and perhaps even genius can face the spiritual truth in its physical body. We have lost the sense of finding God in concrete experiences. That's been the whole purpose of our work and you know for the last two years to find in poets to to find in concrete actual things Christ at work. Okay, um, just a quick review of um, the differences, some of the important differences between the Protestant and Catholic sensibility. In terms of authority, in terms of authority, I'm going to cover a number of categories here. In terms of authority, Um, the authority for the Protestant world lives basically in the individual. In, as an act of faith, he's arbiter of everything that goes on in the world. Um, for the Catholic, it's not. The Catholic believes that there is an objective reality in front of him, in the Mass, in the Eucharist, in, in the priest. That um, Christ is present in persona there. Um, um, so 
the starting points are very different um, because faith is essential, basic to both of them. Um, they both start with an act of faith, but in one case, the, the act of faith is basically subjective. It's supersensible. It, it, it rests on a supernatural reality that can or cannot be validated. For the Catholic, it's an act of faith too, but the faith begins in a belief that Christ is present, objectively there. So the rituals are not just rituals. They're not external things. They're, they're, they're ceremonies in which Christ is actually taking a part in the Eucharist and confession and marriage, all of the sacraments. The Protestant becomes arbiter of his world. The, the Catholic, is, I mean, in theory, is more docile. We're asked to be obedient, that that's Christ to take seriously. There's something there we have to give our wills to. We can't just make the world what we want. So in one of them, the person makes the world what he wants. In the other, um, the person conforms to it. Truth, St. Thomas says, is the conformity of the mind with things. We're asked to conform our mind with things. We can't just make them what we will. With respect to ways of knowing, the second category, with respect to ways of knowing, the Protestant mind is angelic. It skips the world. It circumvents it. Um, it doesn't contemplate the thing before it because for all the reformers, nature was depraved. It's fallen. It's not just wounded. It's, um, it's awful. In some ways, it's almost demonic. For the Catholic, um, it's not angelic. It's human. He, he, he begins with a sense of human limitations, that the ordinary thing in front of him um, is his natural end. That's our nature. It's part of our nature. To love a four-year-old girl when she pricks herself, to love a bird, to, to look at swans and find a beauty, you know, whatever, whatever's in front of us. It's the, 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 there's this wonderful fullness and plenitude in things. God made them all. He's present in them all. Do we find him? Or have we lost our way into the natural order? Are we going past them for the sake of abstractions in our heads? By the way, just to reinforce this, particularly for both of these things, it's, it's not just the Protestant mind. I mean, what begins in the 15th century. Remember that the um, idealist philosopher, philosophies of the modern world, the, the philosophies that begin with Descartes and Kant and go on. The assumption of the modern world, philosophic assumption, and it, and it drives academics, intellectuals, come out of that world. The assumption of the idealist philosophers is what we know are not things, <coughs> Candy, Suzanne, me, Valerie, meatballs, um, <laughs> What we know are not things, what we know are ideas in our heads. Because our heads are mental, the world outside of our heads is non-mental, it's physical, it's a different world. So they look at the two worlds as discontinuous, antagonistic, incongruous. So even modern philosophy drives us into our heads. We've lost our way into the natural order. There is an estrangement in our modern world, these dissociations. It's hard for us to make contact. It's so much easier for us to live in our heads. We can have, right? We can have what we want there, we think. 
Um, I almost wish we could do T.S. Eliot's Proof Rock because Proof Rock, which is a poem about a guy who's damned, Proof Rock ends with this description of these mermaids singing and Proof Rock drowning. It's impossible for him to come into contact with anything real because if he does, he will drown. If we're used to living in our isolated worlds, what happens when we contact, we come into contact with the real world? Overwhelms us. I hope I'm not often, I mean, I hope everybody's sort of, no? Is, is, am, am I assuming that this is typical when it's not? I'm assuming it's sort of our world, so. So this isn't just the Protestant world, it's the, it's the modern philosophic world, too, the mental world that we live in. Um, with respect to the sacraments, they're all taken away in the Protestant world, virtually. They're all taken away. Um, Luther kept the Eucharist, but you know he radically changed it. He, he replaced the transubstantiation condition of the Eucharist with consubstantiation. It's an it's a important difference. For the Catholic, there is a sense that um, this is, the Catholic world really is an um, both and. Is that right? Both and. Not <coughs> either or. Either or, thanks. Not either or. It's not one it's not black or white. Things canceling out. There's a complexity. It's it's both and. They hold together. <coughs> For the Catholic, the, the natural world is is a source of richness. There are things there. But what's also present in the natural world is the miraculous. It, how else does it come to it except through the natural world? We're not in space somewhere. We're not angels. We don't experience it. If a, if a miracle is going to take place, it's going to take place in nature. So for the Catholic, the two are not antagonistic. They're not discontinuous. They're there. So the sacramental and the natural world dovetail. They're a part of each other. So the miraculous is a part of our world. It doesn't get relegated to something outside our minds. And what happens when you take the sacraments away, Calvin did, you know that, take the sacraments away and Christianity reduces itself to a moral code. There we are. We're back in Moby Dick, those of you who are here. Um, remember the beginning of Moby Dick was you, all these Christians are failing. They're living this moral code and blind to the fact that they're not living their faith. We saw it in Faulkner's The Snopes Trilogy, those of you who did that. Remember in the town, uh, Montgomery Snopes, who is one of the evil figures in that book, hides behind respectability. He knows that Gavin and the, the policeman in, um, in um, <coughs> Jefferson um, are going to protect him because they don't want to implicate their friends. If respectability becomes our way of life because it gets easier to get along, how likely are we to disturb it? Respectability becomes an enabling condition. It becomes an enabling condition. We don't want to do things to disturb things. And, and think about it. If you're a Protestant, what's the sign of your election? 
your respectability. It's your decency. It shows you're among the elect. You're saved. Who would go against that respectability then? hope I'm making sense here. So respectability becomes almost a paralyzing condition of our world, an, an enabling condition. The Catholic doesn't measure himself by respectability. He looks at respectability as a handmaiden. It's, it's important, it's good, but it's not the final thing. The final thing is holiness, sainthood. To realize those conditions means very often you go against respectability. You're going to have to challenge those things, and when you do, what's, you know it's going to happen. A respectability world, a respectable world is going to first you, turn on you. It's almost like the old Jewish faith. Yeah, really. It. You're talking about respectability? Yeah. External observances. So my, I could, couldn't, Valerie, couldn't agree more. My own, I've said this before, <laughs> just, I really think there's an Old Testament quality that permeates the Protestant world, even, even though they want to break from it. Because if you take away the sacraments, you're left with respectability appearances. You, you're, you're living in observances. And the other interesting thing, take away the sacraments, and what does the minister do? He does exactly what the rabbi did in the Jewish tradition. The rabbi s gathered in the s uh, people around him, and what did he do? Interpreted scripture. What does the modern Protestant minister do? There are no sacraments. What does he do? Interpret scripture. They're in their heads. So um, the, the, the Catholic is called to, to live our faith means, I mean, the, all of the letters of the, you know, Paul and Paul James and all of them said, obey the secular leaders. We, we, have, we have to live in the world. We have to give obedience to our kings. Thomas More. We have to give obedience. We can't deny respectability. We can't thumb our nose at it the way the, ad the adversarial culture's response to the hypocrisies of respectability, thumb their nose. You know, hip-hop and the, the violent things. That, I mean, because they're aware of the hypocrisies. There's something ugly about respectability. But then they go off, way off in the other direction. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Are you all with me? Yeah, but they blame a lot of the break was because the church wasn't maintaining its yes. respectability. We're getting there. So it's not worth, they're not even, they're, it's more than their respectability that they weren't respected. They, they lost the They lost the Yeah, yeah, it was much greater than respectability. But anyway, at this point, I just want to set out some of these broad generalizations that I'm making. That when you take away the sacraments, you have no basis in which to gauge um, your election, your faith. So for the Protestant world, it becomes um, living a good life. You know, and very often, so I said in the last couple of weeks, there's a tendency in the Protestant world to accommodate down to the political social order. Um, the church always struggles to hold on to something higher. And at the root of it is holiness. The sacraments, everything about our faith calls us to holiness. And I'm trusting here, I, I mean, I know it for myself, I'm trusting everybody. The call to holiness <laughs> puts us at risk, all of us at risk greatly. Because to step outside of that world takes us into a darkness. We don't see into it very well. It's, it's, an, it's, it's, we, move, we move more deeply into the action of faith we can't take our guide as much from the social order. To move into that world 
can be frightening. No books are written. You can read books about it. They're not going to help you much in the particular case. <laughs> because whenever we step into that world, it's usually there's something concrete, particular. Um, a guidebook how to do it is not going to help. We go into that world frightened, hoping, trusting. Vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I, so I hope I'm, I hope everybody's with me here because I know I'm going into things. But there it is again, you know, take away the sacraments and you've got, you're left with two different worlds. And one of, serious, one of the questions we should be asking ourselves in our world today, how well is the Catholic dealing with this? Or does he catch himself, hold himself in the respectable world and ignore his call to holiness? You know, if you go to Mass during the week, um, it's not uncommon um, for, certainly for Father James, to talk about the saints honored in that day, whatever the patron saint of that day, and you, over and over and over and over again, it's the saint stepped out of that world, whatever he did. So the church holds up saints because they're the ones who lived holiness. Why else are they saints here? And infallibility, and I'm really glad, really glad you mentioned that um, last week. I just want to offer this thought um, we've talked about that scene in Matthew in which Christ says, who do they say I am? You know, remember? And um, Peter acknowledges and Christ sees that Peter could not have done that on his own. It's, it's an indication that the Holy Spirit's with him, God's with him. And Christ confirms it. And shortly after that gives him the keys. Why did Christ give Peter the keys to bind and loose? I just, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. God, I feel, I'm jumping into this world I'm talking about here. This is personally, to me, I, I, I don't think the church will get on me about this, I hope. I hope not. Um, because, God, if you think about it, Christ gave, Peter, Christ gave Peter the keys when he knew he was going to betray him. So it's, like, it's not like he said, this man is perfect. Because he's going to betray him. Um... I believe that he, he did that, first of all, he, he gave it, knowing what Peter would do, because he did know in advance, he told Peter about the crow, he saw it all, he knew it was going to happen. He did it because he wanted Peter to know who he really was, Peter himself. Because for Peter to be given that position, to think that he was better than he was, meant he would have failed. He had to come to know his failings as a man before he could take on that office. Because too many of us, when we get up, caught up with religious ideals, want to be these great, <laughs> flawless figures, that's not the person who began our church. The person who began our church betrayed Christ. There's no way Christ didn't know that. And there's no way, there was no way Christ could not have known the depths of the dangers, demonic that Peter would have faced, or the church, because he himself faced it, okay? Christ was going to leave. He knew that. He knew he was going to leave. How could he leave his church here on earth without helping that church to prepare itself to deal with the depths of evils it was going to face? Let me put this differently, because we've got paradise lost behind it, although we shouldn't need it. If you put a demon, a demonic spirit, next to a human being, alone, who's going to win in that contest? 
because they are infinitely wiser than we are. They see so much, you know, play around with Satan, tempt Satan. Who's going to come out in that? Tempt Satan, that scares me. I've said to people, don't tempt Satan. Don't tempt some things. If you think you can go into a battle with Satan, guess who's going to win? I mean, that frightens me, just terrifies me. How could Christ, what could Christ have done knowing he was going to leave the church to prepare it for the evil that it would have to deal with in the world, historically over time? No way. He gave Peter the keys because he knew without them he wouldn't have the authority to deal with what the church would deal with. Look at its history. Look at its history. Over centuries. <laughs> By the way, you know, people are going nuts about corruptions in our church, right? They, I, I shouldn't. This is going to sound glib. I don't mean it glib. Part of me laughs. The church has never, ever been without the worst kinds of corruptions. Ever in its history. Ever. We saw it in the Reformation. We're going to see it right now when I do the historical overview on Dante. Priests are selling out. Bishops are selling out. Priests are um, not ordaining, but commissioning. It's not the word I want, but you know, they're conferring the, the office on bishops. So the, the kings and lords have control over the church. Dante's going to come into the church. Some of the greatest sins in hell are going to be simony, selling of church properties, you know, so Dante's writing in the midst of a corruption that is, is at least as great as ours. So Christ knew that he was going to leave. There's no way our church, since it was in the hands of men, could have dealt with the depth of evil. Does that mean all the popes would have dealt with it virtuously? No. No. Take away infallibility. Now stop and think for a minute. Look at all the heresies in the early church. Arianism, Sabellian. They don't stop. I've gone over a couple. Last time we did Dante, I gave out a packet of heresies. If anybody wants it, let me know and I'll print another one off for those of you who are new. The church said Christ was man. He was God. He was, if, a, if a priest was in sin, the, the sacraments were invalid. It didn't stop. The, the, the challenges to the nature of Christ and the nature of the sacraments went on forever. It's at the center of the Reformation. We looked at it for a month when we were doing the historical background. Take away infallibility. What would happen to our church concerning the most important dogmas? Look what happened with the Reformation thinkers. Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin. They, they radically put them away, changed them. Infallibility speaks in the word of God concerning those things most having to do with his nature. Take that away, what are humans going to do with it? Well, I mean, we've seen that. They never stop. They didn't stop in the Reformation. So with respect to all of these things, the, the church in a sense, I wish I, had, I wish I'd had the foresight to... There are some of these beautiful lines of Chesterton in Orthodoxy. I can't remember them, but he has the he gives an image of the church like a like a chariot moving through time, trying to keep its balance. That every age presents it with different problems, and the church is always struggling to answer extremes everywhere. But it's this image of this amazing institution trying to hold on and helping us who struggle in these ages when we're facing imbalances, you know, because they're always peculiar, they're always different for each age. Looking for some help to
to do that. Is the church always right? I'm going to risk my neck here. I don't believe so. And I believe the church is very often slow, but I also know it has to be. You know, it, um, so it, sometimes it seems a little bit behind. When I think about what it's facing, that it, to, me, to me, it's so understandable. So um, those are some of, the, some of the major concerns that we've been looking at that, that are brought to the surface in the Reformation when so many of those things are challenged. The authority of the church, the way we know, the nature of faith, the nature of the sacraments, why, all of those things. <coughs> if, if what I'm saying is true and we're called to holiness, not respectability, if we're called to holiness, and, and I, I keep hearing Christ, unless you eat of my body, unless you drink, unless you do this, if we're called to holiness, is there any way we could help realize that condition without the help of the sacrament, without him present in us? Speaking for myself, I'd say no. I'm, I'm saying that <laughs> aware of how awful my own sins are. <laughs> Think about dealing with my own sins without that help because I fail all the time. I mean, even as much as I, you know, I go to confession regularly and take you first. <coughs> try, to, try to imagine my life without them. And God, it's, anyway, sorry, Mary, go ahead. Don't we say in the consecration, all those who seek him with a sincere heart? So, no, I mean, all those that seek him with a sincere heart, <coughs> I, I, I think, yes. are... We all, we all like to think that, honestly, in my opinion, but hell's not empty. Oh, so I mean, so I mean, I mean, when well, we sit there and we say, okay, did I, I do okay? Was I good? Did I do the right thing? Did I fail? Yes. Did I well, do an I, act of contrition? Did I help? Is it good enough? I'm saying oh, no. that, that, that heaven isn't just full of Catholics and hell isn't just full of Catholics. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying that since do those, we know? all the, well, mm -hmm. I, I believe. I believe we, I believe we do in some way. Let me answer that. Cause I was actually, that's my conclusion. But um, anyway, that's the sort of thing. Now, what I want to say on a personal note, um, since we're, I'm summing up and putting this all into perspective. By the way, I have two things to say. One is I want to thank everybody for doing this, first of all. When I thought about doing this, I, th I think I told you all, it came in response to one of Father's homilies when he talked about Milton. and I don't know where that came from. Maybe the spirit. I'm a little bit nervous about claiming those things, but um, but I went into this with um, huge reservations. Huge reservations. I've, I've taught Milton for years and years, and always been uncomfortable with Milton. Always. I think he's an extraordinary poet, but I think there are problems in Paradise Lost. And um, but I had reservations that I could bring anything out of this. Going back to the Reformation period now and focusing on it the way I did because I focused on it more here than I would in a class where Milton's more the focus. So I, I tend to give a historical background, but I wouldn't have gone into it as much depth. I, I did this time because there's a catechetical aspect to this. I just want to say to you all, I mean, I, I don't know how you, what you learned or how you received all this, but speaking personally, I'm really glad I did this um, more than I can say because it just, sharpen the focus for me on everything. 
Milton. And now that we've got Milton here and Dante, it will, it will sharpen the focus even more because we're going to be in a very, very different world. I mean, all of you should know that. In Milton's world, we're in an angelic world, largely. Largely. A, a very platonic. Very, very platonic. In Dante, we're going to be in a very Aristotelian. Plato will be there, but not dominantly the way he is in Paradise Lost. So we have, a, we have an opportunity to experience concretely what our faith is about, not just in a catechetic, not in terms of abstractions in a catechism class, but concretely in things we've looked at. And that, for me, is a real value. So I just want to thank everybody for that. The second thing is, it goes to uh, Mark's point and, and Mary's, and it's this. I've tried really to be very, very careful. I'm not sure that I've done a good job. I've tried. In, in all of the present, I was aware of um, how delicate an issue is. Um, Valerie's Anglican, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, well, Episcopal is from the Anglican yeah, tradition. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot tell you how much I admire her. Um, that I admire her that much, it's scary because I, I would hate to lose her meatballs. <laughs> if I ever did, if I no, ever did anything to chase her away. No, you haven't offended me. To me, to me, the important thing is I've always had a separation of this in earthly church and yeah. heavenly church. Anyway, I just, I, I personally have a lot of admiration that you have been through this. Anyway, in my presentation, what I've tried to do is present the two worlds as objectively as I could, not making personal judgments, because it wasn't my place. I mean, what I wanted to do was set out objectively what I believe are objective differences between the two faiths. Because if we know them, we're in a better way to go out into our world and live them and, and enter into a discussion, an intelligent discussion, with somebody who doesn't understand them. And I want to just take that one step farther. The second commandment is, don't use God's name in vain. I think I've gone over this before in class. I don't believe that means don't swear. Every time I say that, I want to cuss just in class to shock everybody. But um, it doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. It's not our place to decide who's in hell or who's not. And I've said this before, um, I, I believe that there are going to be a lot of Protestants for exactly the reason Mary was, you know, bec because they have so completely dedicated their lives to Christ. Christ says, if you, he says, he says that himself, if you believe in me, you'll, I think that's a little bit too simplistic because he'll say, in addition to faith, Paul says, you can have all the faith in the world if you don't love. Christ says, repent. Pick up your cross, follow me. Um, today, tonight, I call you my friends. You have this new commandment to love. To love as he does means going to a cross. Does, it doesn't mean adjusting the world to, so that it's convenient to us and love the way we want because it's convenient. It's going to mean at some point we're going to have to love when it's not convenient at all. So um, we live in a tortured world, you know, that, and... Um, I, I, it, I just do not believe, in the depths of my heart, that the Protestants who, who take their faith seriously and who live it are going to be separated from Christ. And I don't believe that all Catholics, by virtue of being Catholic, are going to see him. But what I do believe, 
in accord with everything we've been doing, is that there is a greater fullness in the Catholic Church, and if we live it, what we take into the next life will be a greater fullness. So that if you take, if you take two Catholics, let me put this to rest, <coughs> if you put two Catholics, and one of them has, has lived his life less completely than another, and they go into heaven, that the one who's lived it more fully will carry that fullness with him. It will be in his glory. They will both be there equally. They're both present. But, um, but carrying something from the night. I mean, I, I'm assuming, I, I mean, I, if I, I hope, I, in fact, I hope everybody will pray for me. I'm saying that very seriously. If I get to heaven, I, I will be so glad to talk with St. Thomas or Peter or Shakespeare or Dante, you know, the people that I, who have so influenced me. There's no way I can think about talking with St. Thomas and wondering if he, I know, I mean, I'm being facetious, wondering if he will understand me because his mind is so infinitely greater than my own. That's got to show in his presence, whatever, you know, what, however he will be, his lights will be greater than mine because he brought, he brought so much more of Christ to the world. So I believe that anybody who believes in Christ, if he, if he dedicates his life, will see him. Everybody? I, I don't know. But, um, but I, that's why I, I did you that, that circle thing where I tried to show that you know, there are degrees of completeness to this and they matter. Um, by the way, Dante will say this. Dante will say the same thing. When we get to the middle of heaven, the paradiso, Justin, Justinian, the level of justice will come to Dante and show Dante that Gregory and other saints went back to the pagan world after Christ came, resurrected people and took them back so that they would see the resurrection. Because here's the thing to remember. Is there a past and a future for God? No. 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 So he's not bound. And one of the, one of the difficulties we keep tripping over is because we live with the past, present, and future, we think the past is settled. I mean, I've been saying, from those of you who've been with me from the beginning, that's not true, even for us, if we had eyes. One of my arguments from the beginning is, if you read the epic poets, you cannot read an epic poet without seeing every poet carries his predecessor with him and transforms him as he goes. They're picking up the past and changing it. My belief as a parent, we carry our parents with them, with all their faults, doing everything we can to redeem them as we go. Because if we just leave them there, condemning them, hating them, whatever we do, we're missing something. The past is never dead, not in our faith. So if, if God isn't bound by the past, who says he can't pick up pagans who live before, because they happen to live before Christ and they're going to be punished for that? Or That's not our God. So we're left with mysteries. Did you say you just didn't speak for God? I am, well, I am, yeah, but not ex-Catherine, ex not, not in that condition, philosophically or... Anyway, you, you follow. I just, um, we, have to, we have to make an allowance for some mystery. There's lots we don't know. But our faith is, if we, the more we know God, the more his love opens to us, 
the harder it will be to, to make black-white judgments in anything we do. Um, does that mean we never make them? Yeah, we do. And I think it's important. That, that is, I think it's important to say there is a heaven and a hell. That's a black-white. There is right and wrong. Yes, there is a black-white. Yes, there is a right and wrong. But we have to be careful in the way we make our judgments concerned because we can get, we can be very often wrong in the way we make our judgment. I, I know everybody knows that, so. Okay, enough. Um, any questions or responses before we jump into Dante? Did you? Are you cold? Mm-hmm. Are you? I'm, I'm okay now. Is anybody cold? I've got... No, I just, when you said that the person who lives a more full life, they'll take that into heaven with them. When you say a full life, are you talking about in holiness? Are you talking about just in faith and the way they believe their lives and their actions? I wouldn't separate those two the way you just set them out, that I'd okay. say they're, the holiness is, is what you described in your second set of examples, you know, just. <sighs> when I, the more I think, particularly when I come up here to teach this, because then I, I boy, I, I, I just feel the dangers to me personally. The more I look at our church, the more I, aware I am that the gifts he's given all of us are not to be buried under a lampstand, that we are asked to take them out and remember what he did with the guy with the talents, the one guy who came back and, you know, he's, he's there with the people bashing their teeth. I mean, we're, we're given a love, supposed to live it. Um, so the more we know about our faith, <laughs> the greater the dangers we face, I think, for, you know, for ourselves. I'll understand if anybody wants to leave right now. <laughs> Okay, let's quickly. Um, a couple of very quick notes. Last week I talked very briefly about um, the importance of the Trinity in the Divine Comedy. I'll come back to that in a minute. And I talked about the contrapassos. You're all, all of you are clear on what the contrapassos are, right? Anybody not? Please tell me. Okay, Mary? Yeah. Every, if you were a doctor, if you were a lawyer, one of the doctor lawyer, let's let's take a doctor. If you were a doctor and somebody came in, and you saw all these symptoms, right? You'd see those as effects that had a cause, and your understanding of that would be the grounds of your saying, "I want you to do this, take aspirin and, or see a surgeon or, you know, whatever it is, right?" Because you're reasoning from effects to causes. How else could you prescribe otherwise, right? And you all know, we all know doctors make mistakes all the time. So I said stay away from hospitals. Um, people die in hospitals all the time. Um, but you know that's right. And if you talk with a lawyer, if a lawyer looks at a case, if he's a good lawyer, he will say, that was unjust. Or, or you've got a grounds for answering the people who are accusing you because they're unjust in their accusations, right? He'll reason from the situation to its causes and make a judgment. Doctors do it. So 
when I read Dante, I'm, I'm amazed at how well he does this, and I believe he got it from Thomas, because Thomas is so clear in cause-effect relationships. He has a, the mind of a scientist. When we are reading the comedian, we come across characters in, at each level. He's just, he's masterful at this. At every level, whatever the characters say will be like that effect of a patient coming into a doctor's office. You look at it and you can infer causes. Their words will give them away. We know that all the time because, you know, I'm sure this happens. Somebody will say something and we'll get offended. Was not right to say that. How do we know that unless they say, that was bad because it actually showed this. What you really meant was this, right? We're inferring causes, we go back. So at every level when we encounter uh, the sinners in hell, the words they say give them away, their actions give them away, and the contrapassa, which is the atmosphere. So the atmosphere at every level is a sign, a visible sign of an interior invisible condition. So if the sin is lust, say as it is in Francisco and Paolo, I mean, you, when Dante hears her words, what does he does? He passes out. That is a, a, a really interesting. How good a reader is he at that point? Not a good reader at all. He's too overcome by pity. I'm not kidding. He's too overcome by pity. He's so touched, so moved by her that he passes out. So what we know is those words can deceive. The, the question I asked you is, what do we learn about her from those words? I tried to give that you know, example where her use of love, the way it turned, twists in on itself, you can almost see her soul turning in, twisting to justify, you know, to make, to, to make somebody feel sorry for her. The winds buffeting them out, that's an image, a contrapasso image of what's invisibly going on inside of them. So, I mean, if you go to a doctor, if you go to a doctor to learn about medical, the, the, the causes of medical problems in her life, you want to deal with spiritual problems in your life, read the Divine Comedy. Because there's not a level you can read where you don't see exactly what the symptoms are of a spiritual disorder that's invisible inside of our souls. So at every level, Dante's showing us the nature of sin. When we get to the purgatorial, he'll show what we have to do to answer it. And in the Paradiso, we'll see what happens when we do answer it. The, the state of blessedness or joy that we come to, the sense of completeness that we come to when it's all over. That's the contrapasso. Does that help? Okay. Prophecy. Really important. Here's some of the major things I want to tackle tonight. We're not going to get into the first thing. No, we're not. <laughs> God. Going <laughs> <laughs> to get a ride home from anybody tonight? <laughs> um, prophecy. Prophecy, remember, doesn't mean telling the future. That isn't what it means. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament were rejected and persecuted 
because they told the Jews things they didn't want to hear. They, they spoke the truth. So prophecy in biblical terms generally means God is calling somebody out to show, to show people something about themselves they don't want to see. That's why people didn't like them, because we, do, we don't like being criticized. We want to keep doing what we want to do. Um, so prophecy, one aspect of prophecy is that God believed um, that our ultimate salvation, our, the ultimate end of our lives was salvation with him, but that we couldn't attain that salvation without his help. They're just things we, we need help with. So he sent the prophets to help us see things about ourselves that are ordinarily not available to us. They're just a little bit deeper. You know from my teaching on the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid that I believe that those poets are on this side of Revelation, that they are prophetic in, in just amazing ways. It's like people in the natural order have been given these gifts to help us see things about ourselves that are important for us to see. Um, one of the, so the, the prophet shows us things about ourselves. And, and the interesting thing about um, um, poets who are prophetic is that they always show us something concretely, not in abstractions, concretely. And they speak to us in our time. So great poets, great poets come up in a timely way to speak to this. Melville, for those of you who are here for Moby Dick, Faulkner in our age, that all of them helped us to see things about our culture that we wouldn't see without them. And any of you who've done those readings know how amazing they are. Um, the prophet, the, the poet who's prophetic, always takes something up close. Ike, Ishmael, the wailing, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the four-year-old girl. They'll always take something up close and show us something distant in it. So they're bringing distances into the concrete moment. They're, what they're doing is deepening our sight. They're expanding our sight, helping us to see more deeply into things. That's the nature of the kind of poetry that we've been reading. So there's a prophetic nature to poetry. I, I hope, I mean, I, you, I, you guys wouldn't be here, I'm assuming otherwise, because I'm not teaching this as a literature class. Um, what I'm saying has even a greater relevance for Dante for this reason. Um, Dante was born in, what, I think 1265? Yeah. Dante was born in 1265. In the year that he was born, Florence reconstituted itself as a burger republic. It's the first example of the commercial regime in the modern world. And I'll come to that in a moment. Up until that time, um, Europe was feudal. Um, all people lived under the authority of the imperial emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, or the Pope. But the whole order was feudal. What happens with the emergence of these commercial regimes is, is people begin to dissociate from both the emperor and the Pope. So the commercial regimes stand on their own. So the Burger Republic, the modern commercial republic, comes into existence on exactly the year that Dante was born. When, as we go through the, the Divine Comedy, you're going to see, repeatedly, um, Dante is going to be given prophecies of what's going to happen in his life. 
And when he comes into the Paradiso, he's actually going to be given a mission as a prophet. His great-great-great-grandfather would tell him, you have to go back. This is from heaven. This is from God's order. You have to go back and tell things people they're not going to want to hear. And he writes his poem. What does he do? He lays bare the commercial regime. There's not an aspect of the commercial regime that he doesn't open up. And what we see everywhere is, it's what, what are the driving forces of the commercial regime? Pride and envy. Pride, I want to be better than everybody else, I want to get ahead. Envy, when somebody gets something, um, I get angry because I don't have it too. It's another incentive for me to go on. The nature of the commercial regime is, for, <laughs> is to win, to come out on top, to be ahead. I'm not in favor of socialism, so I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying right now. I want to be really careful. I'm trying to walk a careful line here. Um, I, I, don't, I myself don't see a, um, another alternative. What Dante's doing is showing us the, the nature of what we're living in. Um, the literary tradition that he's working out of, um, those of you who've done the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid know that the heroes of those epics are great men. What the Iliad does is show us the importance of this intrinsic dignity to man. The Iliad is about men using each other as objects and using women. The Odyssey is about women using men for themselves, treating men as objects. After the fall, we turned our love away from God to ourselves, and the instinct of selfishness in all of us to, is to is to use others for our own sake. That's true of men and women. Men get the load of it today, but I think it's true of women too. It's, it's something we all do. The Iliad and the Odyssey shows the intrinsic dignity to every human person. And the cost of it, for those of you who read the Iliad, is you have to die. It's only when Achilles gives up his life and he says, um, he knows he's gonna die, goes back. It's only then that he's invulnerable. Until we hold on our lives, we tend to be selfish. It won't be till we give up our lives that we can stop being selfish and learn to love others as another. The selfishness just takes over. The Odyssey is about marriages and homes. So the, the, the virtue for the ancient world of this intrinsic honor this, the, that the gods have given men, it's not what people confer on you because people can give you money for your job. That the fact that you get more money than somebody else, does that make you intrinsically better than somebody else? Absolutely not. That's what the Iliad's dealing with. It's showing there's something wrong with all of that. So the Iliad gives us this notion of kleos, honor. Kleos. It's conferred by the god. When Achilles said, when in the ninth book, when he goes, Agamemnon sends all the embassy to bribe Achilles back into the war, and he says, I don't want all these gifts. These gifts mean nothing to me. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's come to see, he stepped out, he stepped out of that world. There it is, that respectable world. He stepped out of it. And once he did, he began to see something else. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. <coughs> that, that the gods have conferred something on him that man never can. So this notion of Kleos, this intrinsic dignity to the human person, the Iliad. The Odyssey is this notion of nostos. What's nostos in Greek? Home. 
from which we get nostalgia. Nostos, it's about Odysseus' homecoming. If you look at the, if you read the, the, the Odyssey, you know that there are these marriages in the being Nestors and Menelauses, and they're wounded, they're full of wounds. It takes Odysseus almost 19 years to get home, and he can't get home until he faces all these <coughs> metaphysical realities at sea, and it's only because of what he learns there that he can come home to have a different relationship with his wife than the other <coughs> men have. And for those of you, I mean, those of you who haven't read it, for the nine and a half years that Odysseus is at sea, nine of those years are spent under the control of a woman. Um, Calypso has him for eight years, Circe for nine. He's got to learn that there are things in women that, <laughs> underneath the surface that, that he's got to learn to deal with or he cannot come home. So the Odyssey gives us a sense of a, nost- a homecoming. A homecoming doesn't mean having a house full of things, possessions. It, it means a certain kind of love between a man and a woman. And the nature of that love is virtuous. If, you, if you've read the Odyssey, you know it. Odysseus has to come to it, and so does Penelope. And in the Aeneid, we get not the individual. This is the Greek world, the individuals. In the Roman world, we're given a sense of the common man, the importance of the common man, and Aeneas's great virtue is pietas, this love of the gods. And you know from the Aeneid that, that his great task is to found the city that will make it possible for human beings, whatever their background, to come together. Rome is called the eternal universal city. It will not die out. All the other cities that um, Aeneas visits are dying cities. They're all dying. He's going to found this city in which people can come together, whatever their background. The cost of it, horrible. He is almost nine years at sea, failing again and again and again to found the city. When he finally gets to Italy, he's, he's almost overtaken, overwhelmed by battles, fights, wars. Because how, easy, how easily do people give up their racial identities? They don't. They don't. Is that changed? <laughs> None at all. So Rome is an image of the universal city. It's this longing in man to, to be able to come together with people from different races and be one. So if you look at the ancient world, this intrinsic sense of honor, this home, the, the love between a man and a woman, and the city, this new kind of city, Dante's incorporating all of them. They're all there. Everyone, except he transforms them. Because now the epic hero is not this great Achilles or great Odysseus or great Aeneas who are overcoming these great wars. <laughs> it's this guy, when he crosses the Acheron, passes out. When he hears Francisca's story, passes out. I mean, he, he, and, and um, the battle he's fighting, by, by the way, I think, I think it's extraordinary. The battle he's fighting, learning. The nature of the, of the epic quest in the Divine Comedy is learning. The Dante has to learn about himself and human beings, or there's no way he will get to his final end. Because his ultimate end is not honor or a marriage or the city, it's reunion with God. 
So Dante changes the nature of the epic, and, and he changes it in fundamental ways, most of all by taking himself as the hero. What he's showing us is that the most important thing for every one of us is to learn who we are, to learn to see what's inside. This is Plato, to mind your own business. Mm -hmm. To learn to change yourself, because if you don't change yourself, you won't be able to relate to the world the way you should. So the whole commedia is a, is a journey in self-knowledge. And the nature of the journey, remember, the nature of the journey is to find a lens. When he and Virgil set off, when Virgil comes to get him, Dante knows that he's going into the next life. Why is it important? Because, like a doctor, I mean, going back to you know, Mir's question about the contrapositive, we go to a doctor to have him look at our symptoms um, to cure the causes, to get to the cause. We read the Divine Comedy and we see this nature of sin, what produced this sin, and look at its cause to answer it. So Dante's showing us is that we can't do that very well until we see ourselves. How do we see ourselves? We can't see ourselves very well until we know our final ends. How will we know the ultimate effect of lust until we see it in its final state, or gluttony, or sloth, or... So his journey is into final ends. You want to know the nature of something? Look at what it's going to be in eternity. Because there you're going to see it for what it is. Right? Because here it can be so often disguised. You know that. When we go to a doctor, doctors often misread. Often misread. Dante's showing us what the final ends are, categorically. So that we will have no mistakes about what we're doing. Hell is a frightening place. It means looking at those things inside of us that, if we're looking at it seriously, they're not easy to take. Okay, let me... God. I wanna, I'm, I'm going to hold off the historical background again. Um, but let me... So let's take a look at some of the things in uh, the Divine Comment. I'll, I'll, I'll start the... Historical background next week when we when we pick up. Um, turn to the end of Canto One where we picked up last week. You remember that Dante Dante starts to climb this mountain, and I'd like you all to read this handout I gave you to, because it'll it'll show you that it goes from Thursday to Thursday. Um, the Dante's journey, this epic journey he takes, is into the wholeness of our human life. He starts to climb the mountain on Thursday evening. The beast beat him back. He spends a day trying to climb the mountain. When he and Virgil, when Virgil comes to help him, and they descend into hell, that's um, Saturday before Easter. They will spend a day descending hell when they come out at the end of hell, they will go to the shores of purgatory. That will be Easter Sunday morning, because at that moment, Dante will have learned to see himself as he is. He will be free of his sins, and it's at that point that he'll begin to take on, he'll go through the levels of purgation to show purgatory. And he'll complete that, and he'll go into the heavens. So the whole cycle, the time of Dante's journey, goes from Thursday, Easter week, to Thursday of the following week. And, 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 and how do we and, know that? Is that in here somewhere? Sorry. 
you'll get loose dates of it. Um, okay. There's a couple of dates. I'll, we'll see. Yeah, actually, I've got some of them, um, Karen, on the on the end of the video. Okay. So on on um, in Canto One, the beginning of Purgatory, when Dante comes to the shore, that's Easter morning. In one sense, what he's doing is celebrating a, a new life. Now, can I tell this is really important. This is a story, but what it's showing is that Dante's going through the, the church calendar, and it's reaching a point of a climax. When the story begins, he's 35 years old, he's in the middle of his life, we'll learn later that he's on the way to being damned. It's only because of the help that he gets from heaven Mary, Lucia, Beatrice, Virgil, and you know how important Virgil's going to be. He's going to, it's only because he gets help from them that he can make this, that he can learn the things that he needs to know about himself. When he does, he will be a much more complete person. The person that starts to, or put it this way, remember, he's, the, the book starts with Dante wanting to climb the mountain. In, in Purgatory, he will actually now climb that mountain. But the person who begins to climb that mountain knows himself better than he did when he began because he sees the real nature of the sins that he carries. Okay. Um, take a look in Canto 2 in the beginning. The day was fading and the darkening air was releasing all the creatures on earth from their daily tasks and I, one man alone, was making ready to endure the battle of the journey and the pity it involved which my memory unerring shall now retrace. O muses, O high genius, help me now. O memory that wrote down what I saw, here your true excellence shall be revealed. Now this is crucial. How do all the epics, the ancient epics start? The Iliad. Sing muse, the anger of Achilles the son. The Odyssey. Sing muse, the man of many ways. The, the Aeneid. Sing muse, um, the... The, the fugitive on his journeys. Every epic begins with an appeal to a muse to, to help tell the story. How does this begin? With the actual human being in the world, in the midst of things. And it's only now, when we're into the story, that he makes an appeal for the God's help. So once again, Dante's taking the common thing, the thing right in front of us. What's the most common thing to any of our lives? Ourselves. Ourselves. Um, it's here that Virgil tells Dante the story of the women coming to get him. It's interesting. All of the divine figures are women. The one male figure is Virgil, and it's Virgil, but it's Virgil who will be his guide. Um, that that's an interesting fact, I think. Um, it, I, I'm sure that I mean that that women seem closer to these things than men, and yet on the earth the men, I'll leave that for you to do what you want with it, but I think that's important. On, on page 13, end of Canto 2, let us start for both our wills, join now our one, you are my guide, you are my Lord and teacher. These were my words to him when he moved, I entered on that deep and rugged road. Now remember, too, before we get to that point where he sets off, it's a deep and rugged road. It's, it's going to be a hard journey. When they start their journey on page 9, from this journey you celebrate in verse, Aeneas learned those things that were to bring victory for him and for Rome, the papal seat. Virgil's saying, 
um, Aeneas had to go on a journey like this, that later the chosen vessel Paul ascended to ring back confirmation of that faith, which is the first step on salvation's road. But why am I to go? Who, who allows me to? I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul. Neither I nor any man would think me worthy. Well, Dante's demurring. He, he wants nothing to do with this journey because it's too hard. Virgil's words to his, stop being a coward um, and pick yourself up and let's go. So this is one of the earlier um, scoldings that Dante receives from Virgil. But through the poem, he will continue to call Virgil his father, his guide. Um, I wish we had the Italian because it would sound different in Italian. Um, Huh? No, but it, you might, I mean, I'd be glad if you looked up those words to get the translation of things like father and, you know. Um, page 14, Canto 3. They come to the gates of Dece. I am the way into the doleful city. I am the way into eternal grief. I am the way to a forsaken race, just as it was that moved my great creator, divine omnipotence created me, and highest wisdom joined with primal love. Before me nothing but eternal things were made, and I shall last eternally, abandon every hope, all who, who enter. I want to just say a word here about eternity. One of the things we see about hell is that people are doing in hell what they did in life. There's no difference. There's no difference. They're, they're in a state arrested doing what they did in life. The only difference is now it's timeless. There is no past or future. I mean, there is in some sense, but if for now, just take my word at this point. There's no past and future. They're stuck. There's no, they will, they, nothing will change. When the, at, the, at the resurrection, when they get their bodies, the punishments will increase because Virgil makes clear that the closer a thing comes to its perfection, the greater its joy, the greater its misery. So when they receive their bodies, their punishments will deepen. But in some sense, they're, what they're doing here is what they chose to do. That's what they'll do. It's like a fixed moment. There won't be anything more. We see that with every one of the sinners. We are at the place where earlier I said you could expect to see the suffering race of souls who lost the good of the intellect. Nobody in hell will understand exactly why they're there or what they're doing. They're fixed. Like Francisco, remember Francisco was blaming God, um, playing a victim? That's, that's her state. That, that will define her. Things won't change. Um, uh, just a couple of things and we'll stop. Um, they approach the, um, the vestibule, which are those souls who were who, straddled, who spent their life straddling line. They didn't do good, they didn't do evil. They didn't, hell doesn't want them, heaven doesn't want them. They're, they're outside. They're in, a, they're in a condition of going on, but they're stung by bees and whipped around, and they're, they're, they live in eternal torture, but they're not exactly a part of hell. When Dante comes to the river Akron on page 17, the boatsman, Charon, comes to get him. Line 99, those words brought silence to the woolly cheeks of that ancient steersman of the livid marsh whose eyes were set in glowing wheels of fire. Go down. The devil Charon, with eyes of glowing coal, summoned them all together with a signal, and with an oar he strikes the laggard sinner. As an autumn leaf, this is one of the typical epic um, similes of leaves falling from a tree to describe the, 
multitudes of souls. Um, page 18. My son, the gentle master, said to me, all those who perish in the wrath of God assemble here from all parts of the earth. They want to cross the river. They are eager. It is the divine justice that spurs them on, turning the fear they have into desire. A good soul never comes to make this crossing. So if Charon grumbles at the sight of you, you see now what his words are really saying. He finished speaking. Think about how important Virgil is. He's just explaining everything as he goes. He finished speaking and the grim terrain shook violently and the fright it gave me even now in recollection makes me sweat. Out of the tear-drenched land of wind arose which blasted forth into a reddish light knocking my senses out of me completely and I fell as one falls tired into sleep. <clears throat> Notice the first step into hell is unconscious. It's not an accident. Dante's showing us is that something about the nature of our soul. The, the first sins we commit, we, we, we may be, at some point I think we become conscious. I remember really, I remember scenes, <laughs> I'm too embarrassed to say right now, but I remember scenes when I was a young kid stealing from my mom. Um, and I'm conscious of that. What Dante's showing us is that sin was already going on before that. That the first movement into sin is, un we don't see it, it's too subtle. So he crosses over and when he wakes up he finds himself um, in, the, uh, in the level of the um, virtuous pagans. And I'm just going to cover this quickly because I want to stop here. Um, in the level of virtuous, the virtuous pagans, nobody's getting punished. You, we won't see this. You know, every, at every other level, people are being punished by their own sins. The effect of their own sins is they're punished. That's a contrapasso. At the level of virtuous pagans, nobody's being punished because they, they were virtuous. Okay? Um, they're here in this level. What characterizes this level, the contrapasso, is a darkness because they lived without hope. They longed for something. They didn't know Christ. They, they lived without the joy that comes from the supernatural virtues. Faith, hope, charity. Think about how possible it is for somebody, think about Thomas More. You know, when we watch the movie, when he goes to his death, I go to my God. You know, I'm, um, I, am, I am the king's faithful servant. Says to the executioner, do your job. Those are all the expressions of a good man because his soul is full of hope. What he's showing is, this is really, and this is a marked difference. This is one of the fundamental differences between the Protestant and Catholic soul. The, Pro, the Protestant thinks people are depraved, that you cannot do virtue. Dante believed that a good man could do virtuous things. He was a virtuous man. But there's a difference between a virtuous man who's virtuous as a pagan and a virtuous Christian. Because a Christian, presumably, lives by faith, hope, charity. Those are the virtues that define, should define us. So what Dante's doing is giving us a glimpse of the inside of a virtuous soul. It's not enough to merit heaven, for that man needs grace. So he will pass from, he will meet all the, the wonderful poets, and at the end, um, uh, line 132, when I raised my eyes a little higher, I saw the master sage of those who know. Comes to a castle with a dim light with a dim light because that's a ray 
of light from the knowledge that those men love. Who's the master? I saw the master sage. It's Aristotle. Notice it's not Plato. It's Aristotle. So Dante will see the virtuous pagans, the condition of that world, and, um, and, and he'll go into the next one, which is the one that we started with last week, with, with his, which is with Francisca and Paolo and Lust. And oh, yeah, right. Then we're on our way. Okay. That's number five. Um, so every level has its contrapasso. So remember, the, the, the handout sheet I gave you describes Dante's method, the allegorical method. At every, it's important to take this literally, but it's also important to... We can't minimize the literal level, but it's really important to always be aware of the allegorical level, the, the other meaning. Every one of these scenes is, shown, is giving us a visible image of an invisible reality. So the darkness here among the pagans is an image of the darkness of the soul when you live without hope. These are good men. Homer was a good man. So it was Vir Virgil. this is Virgil's place. This is where Beatrice came to get him here. Um, they're not being punished because they didn't sin. I mean, but they didn't, they didn't have hope. Okay. And um, I'm going to anticipate a question. It goes to what Mary, Mary's question earlier. I'm sorry Mark is not here, but I'll ask it later. I won't do it now. Virgil's going to take Dante th downhill up Purgatory. And then when he gets to the height of Purgatory, he's going to have to go back here. Why does Dante do that? Because Virgil is such a good man. Dante could not have made this journey without him. Allegorically, what is he saying? I want to leave it there. Just but is everybody understanding that? Because these are good men. They didn't. They didn't have faith, hope, and charity. There's there's a light missing, a hope and a gladness, or a, you know a belief. They're good men. They're here. Virgil will return here. Is that fair? I, you know, what, how, do we, how do we understand that? I don't want to deal with that now. But when we get there, I'm going to raise that question. Just keep this in your mind because we know he's coming back here. Okay, okay um, historical overview beginning the next time we meet. And then we'll move more rapidly through the comedian. If you guys have not made, made donations and you want to, can you give the money to Suzanne? Hmm? Yeah, thank you, Venus. No, you gave me some back in church. Candy, how are you? I never see you anymore. I'm good. I haven't seen you for a while. We were seeing you on Saturdays with Mass and... Um, well, I wasn't around Thanksgiving. Went out of town for Thanksgiving, a whole week Thanksgiving. And then I've been working late, but it couldn't be that time of year when people are now going to the doctor because they met their deductible. So my case still drops, and then the beginning of the year, it'll pick up, but not for very long because people don't want to pay their deductibles because they haven't met them at the beginning wow. of the year. But it gets kind of funny. Yeah, funny. We were, and we were talking today at lunch about how people don't understand the process of doing like physical exam with the doctor PA and they 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 think that they can you know I'm gonna come in tomorrow and I need surgery and you're gonna do it tomorrow right, it's right. Like, no wrong. <laughs> you should have started in October 
you know. Yeah. So it's a weird time. Mm -hmm. Just go off. I wondered if you turned it, if you ever turned it on. I did because I saw it go on. I couldn't tell from where I was sitting. And I didn't. <laughs>